All right, so in our study of the book of Exodus, we come now to Sinai. This is the turning point in the book. The first 18 chapters has been dedicated to God identifying with his people and getting his people to this point. What happens here is of extreme importance. From this point forward, God's going to give his law for the next several chapters, and then the remainder of the book is dedicated to the people constructing and dedicating the tabernacle. For God wants to be with his people. He saved us for that purpose. Now what happens here at Sinai is of such importance that literally the rest of the Old Testament looks back on it. Everything in the Old Testament, from all the history, the kings, the prophets, it all focuses on how God has revealed himself to these people, made a covenant with the people, and the people more often than not are disobedient to that covenant. In fact, they, they reject God, and so God keeps calling them back to faithfulness to this covenant that is made here. It informs the New Testament as well. In fact, theologians to this day struggle with, with what some would call Paul's schizophrenic attitude towards the law. Uh, because in some senses Paul says the law is good, and in other senses he says it's, it's not. And so there's a tension there that people always have had with God's law. But there's no mistaking that this is an important occurrence on the first day of the third month after they leave Egypt, they arrive at Sinai. And they're at Sinai for almost a year, like 10 months and 22 days or something like that. Okay, so for nearly a year, the people of God are going to remain encamped around the base of Sinai. And in that 10-month time, a third of the Pentateuch takes place. If you think about it, even though historically, time-wise, Moses begins with the creation of the world in Genesis 1-1, the Pentateuch, which is Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy, the five books of Moses, everything that transpires in the Pentateuch from Exodus chapter 19 through the rest of the book, all of the book of Leviticus, and the first ten chapters of Numbers, all of it takes place right here. This covenant that God makes with the people of Israel is the covenant that in the New Testament is referred to as the old covenant that's obsolete and passing away. So when Paul makes reference to it in 2 Corinthians 3, and when the author of the book of Hebrews makes reference to it in Hebrews chapter 8, we're talking about the Mosaic covenant here. It's oftentimes referred to as the Mosaic Covenant, not because the covenant was made with Moses, but because Moses is the mediator. And you get a feel for his mediating nature, his mediating role, even as when I was reading the passage, he keeps being called up and down the mountain. In fact, the Pentateuch records seven ascents of Moses up the mountain to meet with God. This chapter records three of those seven. So he, he runs up to God, speaks with God, and has to come back down and speak to the people. Moses plays a key role as the mediator. And that's important. Because in the new covenant, 
It's not lost on us. It's not lost on the author of the book of Hebrews that we approach a better city with a better mediator, with a better sacrifice. And that changes the tone and timbre of our worship forever. What's interesting is what happens here when God shows up and he shows up in fire and smoke and rumblings and lightning and thunder and a trumpet. God never does again. In fact, in Hebrews chapter 12, we learn that only once more will God arrive with such a display. And that's at the end of time. When we are learned that the heavens will be rolled up like a scroll and the Lord himself will descend with a loud shout, the cry of the archangel and the trumpet blast of the Lord. Once more. So this is a very unique thing that happens here. It is unique in the history of the world that a God would come down, speak with, and enter into a covenant with his people. Human history is full of animistic and polytheistic and pantheistic and panentheistic religions with lots of gods who supposedly interact with the people. But never has a God entered into a covenant with his people. And never has a God revealed himself publicly to his people. That is one of the huge apologetic distinctives of the Christian faith. If you think about it, take Islam. Muhammad goes into a cave and, 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 has, and has a vision and talks to the angels and, and everybody else just has to take his word for it. Joseph Smith encounters and finds, what was it, those golden tablets or whatever? But everyone else just has to take his word for it. He can't produce them for people. God here comes and sits on a mountain and preaches a sermon to his people, which incidentally is what chapter 20 is. People think Moses goes up to the mountain and gets the Ten Commandments. God speaks the Ten Commandments to the people while Moses is at the base. And the, and, and the voice of God is so terrifying that they say, all right, all right, Moses, no more. You talk to God for us. We don't want to hear this. This is, this is going to kill us. Okay, Mo God comes down and speaks to the people. And then Jesus. He's resurrected from the dead. And, and we're not just told to take the apostles' word for it. The apostle Paul labors that he appeared to like 500 people so his audience could go and, and verify. So the Christian faith, the, the true God of the universe, is not a God who just works in the secret. He's a God who has revealed himself. And he's about to give his law. Chapters 20 through 24 recount the giving of the book of the law. And we'll talk about it later, but you'll see we, we get it wrong. We think that Moses comes down with these two tablets that are the Ten Commandments. It's not the Ten Commandments. It's the whole law. That's almost tablets. Did you know that? It's the whole law written on two tablets. So God is making a covenant with his people. And he's doing it in wondrous fashion. Why does God show up like this? 
Why couldn't God just show up in a gentle breeze? The people had seen God's power on display in Egypt, at the Red Sea. They had seen the wonders God could work. Wasn't that enough? God wanted to drive home the awesomeness of his being. The gravity of being his people. And the joy found in his graciousness. And revealing himself and coming and meeting with his people himself was the way to make an impression that would last. That was the intent, to last. But then also they were consistently prone to rejecting Moses. It's one thing to say, hear my word, for my word is the word of the Lord. Obey me. The Lord spoke to me. And he tells you to do all these things that that regulate and restrain and constrain your life. And you're like, did God really say to you? It's another thing for that person to come and say, the Lord told me, after you have heard the Lord talking to him. And you yourself have said, all right, I get it. I understand. No more. Moses, you just deal with this God and and we'll we'll just take your word for it going forward. So God wants to impress upon his people not only the glory of his being, the gravity of being his people, and the graciousness of what he's done, but he also wants to instill in them respect and reverence for the covenant mediator, Moses. God's revelation of himself here is the same as his revelation anywhere, which is illicit faith, which produces obedience. Faith, which produces obedience. This is one thing that the law has been a stumbling block for, for people. So many people, especially the Jews, have approached the law with the wrong perspective. Or they've approached it with the cart before the horse. And they've thought, you know what? If we do this, we will be justified in God's sight. We will be righteous. And they've approached the law as if the law is fundamentally about us becoming right with God. And that's why Paul can say at the end of Romans chapter 9, the reason the Jews haven't found righteousness is they've approached the law as if it were by works instead of by faith. One of the key, key starting points for understanding the law at all is remembering that it was not given to a lost people. It was given to a delivered people. It was not given as a means by which man could come into right relationship with God and be justified before his throne. The law was given to a people who had been redeemed as a vehicle by which they could please their father and serve as a light unto the nations. That's what the law was for. Which is why it starts the way it does. 
Now this passage flows out pretty, pretty easily. Verses 1 and 2, it talks about them traveling to Sinai. They arrive at Sinai, and Moses goes up in verse 3. He goes up to the mountain, probably remembering what God had said to him back in chapter 3, verse 12. Do you remember what God had said? This will be the sign to you that I have sent you to Egypt, to Pharaoh, that when all is said and done, you'll worship me here on this mountain. So chances are Moses was up right back to where he had encountered God the first time at that bush. Was it a burning bush again? We don't know. We're not told. He goes up there, though. And there God does meet with him. God had kept his word. He had kept the promise. The promise which was a fulfillment of the oath and covenant he had made with Abraham repeated to Isaac, repeated to Jacob, that he would make a people out of these desperate children. And through them, all the nations of the earth would be blessed. And so Moses goes up there, and God meets with him and summarizes the coming covenant in verses 4, 5, and 6. So look with me, please, at verses 4, 5, and 6, because it's important. You yourselves have seen what I did to the Egyptians and how I bore you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. Okay, stop. Right here, you yourselves have seen what I did. And you know the journey from there to here and how I have brought you to myself. Okay, this here is God's grace. God is saying, I have already acted in history for your deliverance. That is the order of law and gospel in the covenant of grace. Okay, remember and, and never lose sight of the fact of this. In Adam we are all dead. The covenant of works was the initial covenant that if, if you are perfectly obedient, you will live. And every single human being has broken it. But in the covenant of grace, which is how we are made right by God and right with God, our obedience is always, always, always subsequent to God's saving act to us and for us. And so he calls the people to remember, you know what I have done for you. I'm not just coming here willy-nilly out of the blue demanding that you serve me. I have saved you. I have preserved you. I have protected you. I have provided for you. And now I have brought you to myself. He didn't even demand that the people make their way to him without guidance. He led them to himself. And that is what each of us share in common. Our story of grace begins with God bringing us to himself, swooping down. It's like eagle's wings to protect us, to carry us. God has brought us to himself. And now in light of God having brought us to himself, he says in verse 5, Now therefore... So in light of what I have done for you, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, 
You shall be my treasured possession among all peoples, for all the earth is mine, and you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words that you shall speak to the people of Israel. So verses 5 and 6 introduce an if-then statement. If you will hear my voice, obey my voice, and keep my covenant. Obeying his voice, this right here calls us for a high view of Scripture. How so, Ben? Well, God's talking to Moses right now. Okay? And so Moses is the mediator, and Moses is the one through whom God speaks and reveals the law that must be kept and remembered. But Moses is not going to live forever. And he knows this. So what does Moses do? He writes it down. He writes it down that this book, and he says so in Deuteronomy, that this book of the law may be with you always and you will never forget it. And any subsequent ruler must have it read in their presence. They must memorize it. Okay, the voice of the Lord spoke through the mediator and is preserved in written form. And you cannot obey God's voice unless you access and treasure and cherish the written word of God, which is the preserved voice of God. Fast forward a thousand years. And there's a young 18-year-old king sitting on the throne in Judah. His name's Josiah. And he starts this temple renovation project and they're cleaning out some of the dusty corners and lo and behold the priest the chief priest finds this this old book blows the dust off of it oh my goodness it's the book of the covenant now let that sink in for a minute at some point israel judah had literally lost god's word it literally sat in a corner of the temple room, uh, uh, under junk. And of course, Josiah leads a massive reform. Fast forward another thousand years, 1,500 years. You get to the Middle Ages, and where's the Bible? Lost under piles and rubbles of church tradition and dogma and, and, and a language that not even the priests knew. You can't have biblically informed, accurate faith apart from the Word of God. So if you're going to obey His voice, you must read and treasure the Word of God. If you want to hear God speak, you don't go into your inner closet and listen for the still, small voice. That's your heart, probably. And your heart is probably lying to you. If you want to hear the voice of God, the Vox Day, open up and read. And that is where you will hear the words of life that are for you. So if you will obey my voice, and keep my covenant, you will be to me a treasured possession. Does that mean that them being God's people or us being accepted 
by God is, is contingent upon us being obedient. So, really, Ben, are you saying then, is this passage saying that really, actually, law obedience does come before justification? No. And he obliterates that by saying, all the earth is mine. Treasured possession. Remember, the Mosaic or Sinaic covenant here is not establishing a relationship. It's taking a relationship that exists and ratcheting it up a notch. God had already made a covenant with Abraham, repeated it with Isaac, repeated it with Jacob. So it was in fulfillment of that covenant that God had brought the people out already identifying Israel as his son in Exodus chapter 4. So what is happening here is now the people as a people are becoming a geopolitical covenanted nation with rights and duties, responsibilities and privileges. And the treasured possession part. Okay, in a, we've been moving. We just moved out of our house to another one. And we have a lot of stuff, a lot of, some of it's junk. Some of it's not. Some of it is especially treasured, like Kay's grandmother's china that I've eaten on like twice in 21 years. <laughs> it's a treasured possession. So everything in the house is mine. K's or both, whatever. Everything in your house is yours. But I'm willing to bet that with, within your house, with, within, with, within the catalog or encyclopedia of your stuff, there's some stuff that's especially precious to you. He's not saying, Israel, you won't be mine. If you want to enjoy the status of privilege and, and, and distinctiveness, you've got to keep the covenant. Everything in my house is mine. But there are certain things I dote over more. I'm sure you do the same. Everything in the world is God's. Think about that. Everything belongs to God. Every people. Even those... Well, I won't say the groups here because I don't want to... But no matter what bad things other people groups might do or, or how savage certain peoples may be. Everyone on this earth is God's. But God's people is precious to him and enjoys unique privilege and responsibility before him and serves as a showcase and centerpiece of his gracious revealing of himself to the world. And if you want to enjoy that status, Israel, you must keep my covenant. But also, I just interpreted that passage through the lens of 21st century America, Western America culture. Go back to the ancient Near East, or maybe even over to India right now, where BJ said you had, what, 10 million gods, 20 million? 33 million gods. Okay, I don't know exactly how... Indian uh, pan, uh, theology works, but 
I know that in the ancient Near Eastern theology, in the theology of Egypt, each god is responsible or in charge of its own sector of life or or thing or, or activity. And the gods were in constant conflict with each other. This is my turf. They were like fighting a gang war all the time. This is my turf. This is my corner. This is my street. Now into this theological madness, God comes and says, all the earth is mine. There's no conflict of power. There's no other God out there that he has to share power with. God doesn't have to seek permission to to operate in this sector or over this sphere. God alone possesses all. There is no sphere of your life over which God is not sovereign. There's no circumstance into which you enter over which God is not Lord. So all the earth is mine. And because of that, I can guarantee that you will enjoy the blessing of being my people no matter when or where you are. And specifically, you will be that treasured possession. You will be a nation of priests. And that is some awesome news right there. Now, what's what's amazing, you read here in Exodus 19, and it's conditional. If you will obey my voice and keep my covenant, then you shall. Okay, it's conditional. Fast forward to 1 Peter, and we are told you are. You are a royal priesthood, a holy nation. Notice the change? Because in Christ we have been redeemed and cleansed perfectly. But the idea here, that this whole nation is a nation of priests, priests function basically, and they have two things going for them. First, in every culture, a priest is characterized by their access to the God, or gods that they're serving. So priests have access to God in a way that others do not. So God is saying, you, each of you, will have access to me in a way that these people out here do not. But then, priests don't exist and serve themselves, do they? They exist, and you see here the missional nature of God's people. That they are called to mediate and minister God's presence and God's word to the nations. And we've already seen how Jethro, the priest of Midian, responded positively to the story and recounting of what God had done. And we're going to see more of it. And you and I, we are beneficiaries of it. And that's exactly what we are called to do. We have access to God, and we have a responsibility to minister in the name of God. And third, We would be a holy nation, which is what Peter calls us. A people that are characterized by the values and priorities of our king. That's what every kingdom is. A kingdom is a group of people that are subject to the laws of a given king and are shaped by the values and priorities of that administration. And that's what we are called to be. A people who are shaped by the values and priorities of our king.
So, we are that people. And the Lord sent Moses to say, this is the basic covenant. This is the basic just outline of the covenant I will make with these people. Moses runs down, assembles the elders. The elders go and talk to the people. The people respond, probably naively, oh yeah, sure, we'll do it. Though they can't do it. Joshua is straight up honest with them later. You can't obey the Lord. You don't have it in you. Sure, we'll do it. And then the Lord says, I will come and meet with my people. So the Lord says, prepare yourselves. And this is where we see in verses 10 through 15, we're going we're gonna to go really fast, guys. Um, in verses 10 through 15, we see the gravity of God. That meeting with him is not to be done willy-nilly. Man, I, I cannot read this section without being convicted of the nonchalant attitude with which most of us approach worship, myself included. They had to prepare three days. Going forward, when God gives all the law in Leviticus, all these cleanliness, they had to have this in, in place every single time they came to make a sacrifice. And what's the deal with washing clothes? Does that mean they had to put on their Sunday best so we need to work dress in top hats and suits? What, and, and this thing about no sex. I, I thought, you know, are you just, is that just prudishness? No. There's nothing wrong with that. In fact, in, in the New Testament, we're told that, that we're not to abstain from it except for a brief time, and it focuses on brief, brevity, for prayer. And the point here of cleansing oneself physically and priority-wise, because most of us, especially speaking about males, that's on our mind a lot. And what God is saying is that you have your normal life, and I am so extraordinary that everything that your normal life is characterized by needs to be set aside so you can intensely focus on me. It is serious business to come before me. And they had to prepare three days, washing their clothes. That meant, obviously, they couldn't do any more work because otherwise their clothes would get dirty again. They had to set up boundary markers like a police line, do not cross. And it was so severe that if someone crossed it, they had to be killed by, by not even, they couldn't even touch them. They had to shoot them. Severe. Because it is a grave thing to approach the living God. Oh, Ben, we don't need to be concerned with that. Really? What does Hebrews chapter 12 tell us? Do not refuse him who is speaking. For if they did not escape who spoke from a mountain that trembled, how much less will we escape if we do not listen to him who speaks from heaven? Therefore, let us worship God and offer acceptable worship with reverence and awe. For our God is a consuming fire. That's not Old Testament. That's new. The motif of fire is pervasive throughout Scripture because fire purifies and destroys. It warms and it burns in it, you see a great picture of God's being. 
He is a consuming fire. And so the people must take seriously their call to worship in his presence. And then we see the greatness of God. He shows up, and liberals try to say, oh, this is a volcano. No, it's not a volcano. Volcanoes are not characterized by lightning, nor are they characterized by a trumpet. And that trumpet was not Moses. You know what that trumpet was? It was God condescending to speak the language of the people. And in the ancient Near East, you want to know what announced the presence and arrival of a king? The blast of a trumpet, specifically a shofar, a ram's horn. Which is why when Jesus comes back, we're told in 1 Thessalonians 4, there will be the trumpet of the Lord to announce the arrival of a king. Now this is, words defy the immensity of this picture. I know each of you has seen a thunderstorm that the clouds are so black that it looks scary. Imagine this, you're in this desert. It's not the Sahara Desert, but like Arizona Desert, sagebrush, and it's just, it's just nasty, brambly stuff out there. And there's this mountain and this immense blackness and fire and smoke and rumblings. And there's this trumpet that's getting louder and louder and louder, announcing the arrival of the great king. And imagine, if you would, as if the Lord himself as king sits on that mountain as his throne, and it's in it's shrouded in blackness and fire and smoke. And the people are terrified, and rightly so. And Moses speaks, and God answers him in thunder. The thunder is not the voice of God. It's that his voice is accompanied by the thunder. Which is why in Deuteronomy 5, when Moses is repeating this, he recounts that they heard the voice of God. And what people has heard the voice of their God? Our God is great. Our God is awesome. Yet so often we make our lives just about us. John Piper has said in the church, man the creature is big and God the creator is small. See how we have flipped upside down Sinai? We have us on the mountain, thundering and raging at God. Prove yourself worthy of my trust. And the Lord will not be mocked. He is the great king before whom every knee will bow and every tongue will confess. Now I want to close with this. The Lord who descended on Sinai in fire and smoke and earthquake and power and deep darkness is the same Lord who approximately 2,000 years later or 1,500 years later was in a manger. The same Lord. The God of Sinai is the God of the manger. The God of Sinai is the God of the cross. Brothers and sisters, he has saved you by his grace. And he has given his law that you might know how to enjoy his blessing and how you can live differently than the world and thereby showcase to the world that there's a better way and reflect and marvel at his majesty. He's not just the God of thunder, but he is a God of fire.
Let us pray.